Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. And that's what we're here to do, is to exalt the Lord. It is a beautiful week, hasn't it been? Boy, I tell you what, one day this week, it was so cool at night, we just opened those windows up, and my poor wife, she got all freezing, you know, it's like, yes, (laughs) and the man is wonderful, and she calls me the polar bear anyway, but I'll tell you what, I was sure in my best place, I'll tell you for sure. If I were to ask you, do you ever get discouraged, maybe even a little depressed? By the way, thank you for joining us online. We sure love our online family and uh, can't wait to give a hug to you. And I know some are struggling with medical things and others are fearful. We love you and we hope you'll be able to get through this quickly. Sometimes we get discouraged and uh, we need to think about this fact of getting depressed overwhelmingly during this whole coronavirus uh, situation that's in the world. Most people overwhelmingly have thanked the Lord, been spared from the physical consequences, maybe a small sickness, but An increasingly large volume of research, however, is talking about those that are facing drastic mental health effects from the fear, from actually probably unintended, but from the government mandates. CDC released this data just a few weeks ago that not just older adults, but listen to this, one during this time One in four adults ages 18 to 24 have considered suicide. 25% of the young Americans have considered suicide. Harvard Youth Poll of 200, excuse me, 2,513 Americans ages 18 to 29. This is a pretty big sampling. 51% of young Americans said that at least several days in the previous two weeks, they have felt down, even depressed, and even hopeless. Now folks, the effects of this uh, virus and all the other things going on has had a big effect on people's mental health. Then of course, even if that all wasn't going on, the fact of we get depressed simply because we're human. Now, if you want to talk about bad days, you need to consider the very strange story that I read this week. It dates from 1999. Vermont native Ronald DeMuth was touring Eagles Rock African Safari Zoo. He was there with a group from Russia, actresses and actors from a community theater in St. Petersburg. Well, he just really wanted to show them America's many marvels. And one of the things that he thought he would do is to show them 
the effectiveness of crazy glue. And so, true story, this guy squeezed a good supply on his palms of his hands, and as a joke, placed it on the buttocks of a passing rhino. Well, this normally chill rhino, once aware that he was stuck to Mr. DeMuth, he began to panic. He ran around the petting zoo wildly. All the while, Mr. DeMuth was, he was hanging on. The caretaker, James Douglas, relived the story. He said, well, the rhino hadn't been feeling well lately, so we gave her a laxative to release her bowels. And when Mr. DeMuth played his juvenile prank, during Sally the Rhino's tirade, two fences were destroyed, a shed wall was gored, three pygmy goats and one duck were stomped to death. And as for DeMuth, well, the medics and the zoo caretakers had to remove his hands from the backside of that rhino. First of all, the animal had to be captured, calmed down. However, during the process, the laxatives began to take hold. And Mr. DeMuth repeatedly showered with more than 30 gallons of rhino diarrhea. <laughs> Finally able to apply the solvent to his hands, they removed his hands from her backside. And uh, he said, I don't think I'm gonna be playing with cr crazy glue for a while for sure. Meanwhile, as you might imagine, the Russians, obviously amused, were very impressed with the adhesive. In fact, Vladimir Zolokhanov said, I'm going to buy some for my children, but we're not going to any zoos. <laughs> now, folks, that's what I call a depressing situation right there. The fact of the matter is, however, we all find ourselves in some stinky situations sometimes. Now, this morning, we are going to finish our third in our series on the subject of encouragement. The Bible calls it comfort or consolation. We've been examining nine verses, amazing verses, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where the word comfort or encouragement or consolation is used 10 times. It is the greatest single passage in all the Bible on this subject. And since we all need encouragement once in a while, then I know you're going to want to listen. We shouldn't be overly long today, but hopefully you're not like the little girl who became restless at her preacher's sermon as it dragged on and on as she felt. Finally, she leaned over to her mother and whispered, Mommy, if we give him the money now, will he let us go? <laughs> I hope you're not like that. We'll let you go. All right, let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer as we look into this final and perhaps the most uh, powerful part of this great passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great, beautiful passage. How my heart has been lifted again and again, reminded of the fact that you are the God of all comfort. No comfort comes except from you. We thank you. Now, Lord, knit our hearts together. Bless this church. Help us, Lord, to find great comfort and to be a comforter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's remember where we are in this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense. He has to defend his character. He has to, maybe more importantly, defend the ministry against the attacks of false teachers that had come up in Corinth. Sadly and unfortunately, we've learned over the years, and I know you know this, but I remind us all that if you are going to be effective for God, 
You not only have to be a builder, but you have to be a battler. Nobody likes to take time to kind of call out sin, but it has to be done. And so Paul, that's 2 Corinthians, not only is he calling out sin, but it's a very personal, very personal book. He was assaulted in every way conceivable. Their plan, destroy his credibility, then undermine the doctrine, and then in turn teach error. Ultimately, it came out what the issue was. They were on a power trip, and they were money-hungry people, and so they were trying, they felt like they were going to get something if they could get Paul out of there. In one of the assaults on his character, they insinuated, now listen, they insinuated that the reason he was suffering was because God was punishing him. Now, this concept of uh, God punishing us and the fact that, you know, if we're going through some kind of tough time, it's God's punishing us. Well, certainly the idea of divine discipline is a real topic. But the truth of the matter is, uh, it seems like so many today people have the idea of karma. And uh, I know for most Christians and most Americans, it's kind of a joke. But uh, people I talk to, I'm almost like they half believe it. I will say this, Pastor Mike uh, was telling me when he was here this last time that karma is a very real doctrine to the Hindus. They really very much believe it. In fact, it is the reason why they're so much poor in India. There's actually a lot of resources in India, but those who have the resources won't give it to the poor because they feel like the reason they're poor is because of karma. Something they did, something their ancestors did, and so karma is just making them poor, and so we're not going to get in the way of that because we'd be messing with the gods. Now, folks, karma is absolutely hellish and wrong, and it certainly has no place thinking as a believer. And so Paul, begrudgingly, had to leave teaching. He had to answer these accusations for the sake of the ministry. And so in the verse number 3, look at it. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, he said, I, God is the God of all comfort. He said, in fact, not only is it not a fact that I'm suffering because of doing something wrong, but in fact, I've been so blessed even in the difficult times. And he said, here are three reasons or three ways, excuse me, seven different ways why I can tell you that encouragement has been from God. First of all, the beginning of comfort. And we saw that two weeks ago. The origin of any and all comfort. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God. Now, I have some comfort food that I like. I really love peanut butter. And uh, hallelujah. And uh, real peanut butter, not this uh, fake stuff. You know, I used to like Jiffy, but boy... I like that old stuff that just ground up. And uh, that's comfort food to me. But I can't, comfort food doesn't help me in all situations. Uh, there are some old movies or some things we like to do. But I will tell you, the only real comfort comes from God. He is the Father, and not just any God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The basis of comfort. Number two, what is the purpose behind all encouragement. Well, Paul said the reason for it, verse number four, he comforts us in all our tribulation 
so that we can comfort others. It's not an end in itself. Pass it on. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the reason behind it. Then we talked about the boundaries of comfort. There is an extent to the comfort that God offers. You'd say, really? Yep. God is not obligated to make our life be like a cruise liner, you know, being on a, on a cruise ship all the time. No. Look at verse number five. Here's where comfort comes from. Only as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Meaning, if we stand for Jesus, we can claim comfort. Now, if we're a fake Christian or if we're, uh, if we're ashamed of Jesus, no, we can't claim this promise. But if we make a stand for the Lord, not easy to do that. But I'll tell you, if you make a stand for the Lord, God says, you can, I promise you, I will just come to you with great comfort. Then in verse number six, we find step number four, and that is the benefit of comfort. There is good that comes from comfort. Now, it doesn't seem like it, but look at verse six. If we're afflicted, it is for your encouragement, consolation. It's for your comfort and your salvation. If you get saved through this, then thank God it's been worth it. God gets all the glory. And that's the point of this he's talking about. He said that God gets glory through, I don't understand it, but I will tell you, as Pastor Luke just said in a moment, a moment ago, he said the messes we get into are God's message that he's building in us. And so that's what we're talking about today. Now, let's close out this great teaching on the subject of comfort. Now we have the brawn of comfort. The brawn, the power, the power of comfort. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that God's comfort is powerful in any situation, in anything. It is powerful. Now, sometimes you might take a pill to try to take care of some of your pain. And uh, last week I said that, you know, I had a little pain. And so maybe an aspirin. And then if it gets uh, too much, uh, Take an Advil, and if an Advil pain doesn't get cut by that, we just keep going until we get to the point where we just got to take care of it. God says here, I take care of all pain. How does he do it? Now, Paul is going to speak personally of a situation in his life that is the absolute worst he'd ever experienced, and he had faced some zingers for sure. Look at verse 8. For we would not, brethren and sisters... Have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia? Meaning what is known now as Turkey, probably Ephesus, as we'll see in a moment. That we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Now we are not told exactly the scenario. We're not told the instance of when this happened. Probably there was no need to tell this church because... It was pretty much well known by everybody what Paul had gone through. And for us, 2,000 years later, reading this verse, it's really pointless for us maybe to think about any specific little scenario. However, while they may have been uh, not ignorant of what happened, he said, I don't think you know the extent of what happened. Maybe he was referring to the people that had gathered around him taking big old rocks and just 
began to stone him and throw it at him or that he was beaten with rods, not some big long whip, although he was beaten with whips, placed in stocks, starved. You name it, Paul had been through so much physical suffering. It is a, we get a sense that he had been married. He was in line to be in the Sanhedrin. You had to be married. And yet we never hear of his wife during his travels. Maybe his wife walked away from him when he found Jesus Christ. Paul suffered. He suffered loneliness. He suffered people rejecting him. Physical. I'm telling you what, folks, he suffered. It probably happened after the book of 1 Corinthians, or he probably would have referred to it during that book. It probably happened in Asia Minor. Let's go to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. Here we get a little sense of maybe what's happening. I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. That was a feast day, which is about in May of our year. Verse 9. Why was he there? Because a great door and an effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. He had so many opportunities to touch lives that he knew he needed to stay there. But, crazy as it is, many adversaries. The philosopher Aristotle is noted to have said, there is only one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. And for sure, that was not Paul. He suffered no lack of pushback for the traditional values that he preached. And sadly, even those in the church were intent, some, on intent on silencing him. We uh, find in the last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, in that great doctrinal epistle, here's what he says. In verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila my helpers in Jesus Christ. Now we know that these were remarkable people, a husband and wife, wife team, served the Lord together. They had the gift and they used it of hospitality. When Paul, a tent maker by trade, came to Corinth and he founded that church there, he lived with Priscilla and Aquila and he actually worked with them, working with his hands. They're working together in their home. Then when Paul left for Ephesus, and he ministered there for a while, then he left them there. And they served the Lord and used their home actually as a church. And then look at verse 4. Look what happened. Who have laid, who have for my life laid down their own necks. That's some loyal people right there. They said, Paul, we got your back. We got it. We're here. And it says they laid down their own necks, whom unto, uh, not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, Paul was saying, look, we, we suffered. I mean, this was big stuff. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We were pressed out of measure. The word there means crushed. It means stomped on. It means trampled. It means kind of disintegrated to the point where we weren't even, could even know who we were. He was saying we were suffering physically, we were suffering mentally, we were suffering emotionally. I mean, this was a, this was a huge situation. Many adversaries put their life on the line. Behavioral Health Institute 
says there are six warning signs of depression. Maybe that's what Paul was suffering. It says that if you suffer any four of these for two weeks or more, here's what they are. Sleep problems, a loss of appetite or other eating issues, a lack of energy, a loss of concentration, problems with self-image or confidence, thoughts, ongoing thoughts of death or suicide. The idea is that if you have any four of those for two weeks or more, then you're in trouble. You need help. Well, I think Paul would say, I need help. <laughs> I was looking through that list and I thought, yep, every once in a while I can tell you, uh, um, I overeat, I have lack of energy, lack of concentration, <laughs> yeah, I need help. Well, I will tell you, Paul truly did need help. But notice what it says in verse 8. He was pressed be out of measure, but also above strength. I mean, we were absolutely unable to cope with this. Now, Paul must have been a sturdy guy, even rugged. I mean, even living in those days was not easy. And so to be able to endure even a normal day was challenging. Let alone all the moving and the walking and all the people issues that he had to deal with. And in, in light of all that, all the traumatic things that he went through, the stoning, the rejection. I mean, folks, this man was a, this guy's life was challenging. But normally, he'd be able to come back, bounce back, pick up his limp body and keep going. But apparently, now he was depressed. Verse number eight says, so much so, Lois says, he despaired even of life. Folks, Paul was depressed. He was discouraged. I was, it says he, de, he despaired even of life. Despair, that's a difficult place to be to. In fact, the Greek word there is the word for passage. Like you book a passage on a boat. The actual word is no passage. Meaning there was no exit, no escape hatch, no parachutes. I don't see any way out of this, Paul. Have you ever had that kind of sense? I really don't see any way out of this. I mean, we're at a dead-end street on this thing. Physically, I don't see any options. Mentally, emotionally. Folks, there's no passage. It is the idea that despair has come to him. In fact, so much so. Look at verse 9. So much so that we have the sentence of death in ourselves. Now notice the little pronoun we. We, meaning perhaps Aquila and Priscilla, he was saying, look, this was not just, I wasn't the only one suffering. Sister uh, Priscilla was, brother Aquila, they were suffering so desperately. Many Christians were suffering. Or maybe it's just a humble way of him saying, uh, myself, uh, not trying to put any great uh, feeling on himself. But whatever the case was, he was feeling like this was the end of the line. I mean, this was, uh, there was no, no way out of this. In fact, notice what it says, the sentence of death. The sentence of death. That is the Greek word apokrima. It is a word, it's a technical word for passing a resolution. It is the idea that a doctor had signed his death certificate. He said, I'm gonna tell you how serious this was. We had, I mean, it was, our death certificate was already signed. I mean, this was a done deal. 
Now listen, we're talking about a sturdy man, physically sturdy perhaps, but mentally and his will, he had a strong will. I mean, he had an iron will. But even sometimes people that are strong mentally and have a strong emotional, you know, just uh, idea. The Bible says here, even great Paul said, I had felt like I was in the, in the sentence of death. His situation was frightening him. It happens. A wealthy businessman lay on his deathbed and his preacher came to visit and talked about God's healing and God's power and prayed with him. When the preacher was done, the businessman said, Preacher, I'm really sick, but I will tell you, if God heals me, I'm going to give the church a million dollars. Well, miraculously, the businessman did get better. And within a few short weeks, amazingly, was out of the hospital. Several months later, the preacher bumped into this businessman on the sidewalk and said, hey, you know, when you were in the hospital dying, you promised to give a million dollars if you got well. And the businessman replied, did I say that? <laughs> Guess that just goes to show how sick I really was. <laughs> and you know, sometimes it gets like that, doesn't it? We wonder how sick we really are. We say things that we don't mean and... We do things we probably shouldn't. But Paul was truly facing a great adversity. What were the adversities that he was going through? Well, look at verse 9. That we should not trust in ourselves. We should not trust in ourselves. That's the purpose behind all of this. God had a purpose in all of that was going on. He was desperate. He was demoralized. He was defeated. A perfect canvas to God to paint a masterpiece of his amazing power. Amen. Let me tell you the story of Second Chronicles in Second Chronicles chapter 16 of King Asa. King Asa, one of the kings in Israel, made a treaty with a heathen adversary by the name of Ben-Hadad of Syria. Now, the king knew that God was on his side, but he felt like he should hedge his risk a little bit. So stupidly, really, he allied with an evil king. And so a God sent a prophet to clarify what was going on. And he said, you need to know something. You don't have to do what you just did. God is there for you. He'll be there always for you. And look at verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. I love this verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. God is just looking. Doesn't that verse kind of remind you of that verse in the New Testament where it says that our adversary like a roaring lion going to and fro? But did you know that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him? God said he is not only ready to help, he is actually looking for people to bless. But he gives a little criteria here. He said, you need to have a perfect heart. Now, that doesn't mean sinless, of course. Nobody could qualify for that. But it does mean one, typically, meaning mature. It just means someone who sold out for God. Someone whose heart is on fire for the Lord. He said, if you're on fire for God, you're seeking God's best, 
you can be sure God will meet you there. God trusters. That's what I'm talking about. Are you a God truster? You say, well, I'm a God truster. Well, if you haven't let go of this world and said yes to Jesus, then you're not a God truster. By the way, notice back here in 2 Corinthians. Look at this verse. It says, God who raises the dead. God who raises the dead. That's the God of comfort that we serve. The God who raises the dead. We need to get to a point where things are dead. And then God can show his great power. When there's nothing left in the tank, then God comes through. Now, as you know, I drive an old Volkswagen. It's a 1958. has a rag top. And originally, the 1958 has no gas gauge. It just, uh, you just go and, and you try to keep it filled up. But if for some reason you forget or some reason you can't get to a station, there's a little reserve switch and you just flip it and you got one more gallon. Well, I will tell you, sometimes we get to the point where our tank is empty, we flip the switch and we're on reserve. And then the reserve is empty. But thank God, God can come through and God will give you that strength. And that's what he's saying here. When your tank is empty, that's a perfect place when God comes through. Now look at verse number 10. God comes riding into the rescue. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Once again, notice what he's saying. God did, God is, and God will. God's power, God's brawn, the brawn of comfort. In Isaiah 52, as in most prophetical books, there's a near look and there's a far look, both prophetical, one sooner than the other. In Isaiah 52, God was talking about the fact that Israel was coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to the Holy Land. But it was referring, of course, to the time of the Messiah and further to the time of the millennium. But look at verse 10. I love this verse. I love Isaiah 52, verse 10. Isaiah said, hey, Israel, watch God bring us back home. Watch God do a miracle. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and of all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. He has made bare his holy arm. Sometimes people find out that uh, I was, had to have seven daughters, raised seven daughters. And uh, I can tell you that one of the fun things I used to do with seven daughters is I would sometimes just kind of roll up my sleeve and kind of curl my little bicep there, you know. And it was not very big, but to them, they would look up at that and they'd say, wow. I'd say, girl, I just want you to know your dad is here for you and uh, I'll protect you. And we always would have fun for that. And uh, I still do the same thing. And by the way, I want you to know I'm here for you. Same thing. And uh, these muscles aren't just meant for nothing. They're for your protection. And uh, his only harm in the eyes of all the nations. God said he made bare his only harm. I mean, it's one thing to have strength. It's one thing to have muscles. It's another thing to kind of roll them up. When I was a teenager, it was kind of cool to roll up your sleeve a little bit. 
We kept folding it and folding it until you get it right to the right place. That when your bicep would kind of be at its peak there, you know, it'd be kind of right up there on the peak. And uh, that's what we used to do. He stretched out his only arm. He said, I want to tell you how big of an arm I really have. And sometimes God just does that. He just said, I just want to show you how big I, strong I am. It's been called Ruth's Called Shot. It was a home run that Babe Ruth of the New York Yankees hit in the fifth inning of Game 3, 1932 World Series, held October 1st, 1932, in Wrigley Field, Chicago. During the at-bat, Ruth walked up to the plate, made a gesture towards center field as though he was going to hit the ball out. Charlie Ruth, the pitcher, hung a curveball bad idea over the plate and Babe Ruth smashed it 490 yards or feet out of center field. It was called the called shot. What did he do? He just made bare his right his arm. He just walked up to that plate and said watch what I'm about ready to do. A workman employed on a large commercial project at night they had to work at night because some deadlines were coming and some bad weather was approaching and so while busy on the edge of the wall, he lost his balance. He fell. He then grabbed a narrow ledge on the wall with his fingers and hung on desperately. He began to scream, rescue me, help! Machines were blazing away and nobody could hear a word. Gradually, his arms grew numb. He hung suspended over the street below. His fingers began to slip, and against every effort of his own will, he let go and fell three inches to a scaffold that was beneath his feet. It was there all the time, but the darkness prevented him from seeing the scaffold. Folks, through all of his anxiety, he was actually safe. Did you know, folks, we are often so terrified by our predicaments and yet all the time the scaffold of God's care and God's mercy is beneath us the whole time. Remember the words of mighty Moses, the great leader of Israel? Underneath you will be the everlasting arms of God. He stood before his people in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting lasting arms. Now that's a good word there. His arms are always there. The problem is we don't know that his arms are there because we're so busy hanging on with our fingers that we've never just let go and just fallen into the arms of Jesus. The beginning of comfort is God. The basis of comfort is to help others. The boundaries of comfort are to stand for the Lord. The benefit of comfort is the glory of God. The brawn of comfort, hallelujah, God can raise us, but we have to be dead first. And when the situation is dead and when we are depressed and in despair, that's when God can paint his best picture. And now number six, the bond of comfort. Is there a promise? Can we, do we have some sort of a covenant? Are we sure this is going to happen? And is this just a one-off thing that it may or may not happen? No, God says... I give you a guarantee on this matter. Look at verse 10. Paul said, here's the thing, folks. He has always delivered us. 
He's not just delivered me, but he delivers us. Always. Somehow, some way, he always delivers from so great death. Physical death, yes. Physical death, mental, emotional. He said, God has always delivered in the past. He will deliver in the time that you need it. And thank God, he will yet deliver us. A future promise. I've discovered he is a faithful God. God is relentless in his promise. Now, folks, in modern times, most of our relationships are defined, in a sense, by contracts, it's been said. Usually for goods or services or hard cash, sometimes just an informal contract in the sense that, let's say, a patient of a doctor they uh, say, I'll go there, I'll make sure that I keep my appointment. If the doctor, if the person doesn't keep that appointment, the doctor still goes on to the next person. They've made a little kind of informal contract. You come when you say, I'll take care of you. If they don't do it, doctor moves on. But that person may have a little challenge the next time he wants to make an appointment. That's the kind of a promise or the contract informal covenant even that we make oftentimes on many daily basis there's a different kind of contract we have for example with a parent growing up in a home a child fails to show up for dinner it is the parents obligation unlike the doctor isn't canceled the parent then seeks out the child the parent says what are you doing? Why aren't you here? Where's, what's going on? That's really what God's covenant of mercy is. He doesn't just treat us like a, like a doctor might. Well, you come or you don't come. I really don't care. No, it's more like a parent. He keeps a covenant. Paul is saying, God has given us this promise. He's like, he is our God the Father. He will be there for you. That's exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy from Rome when he knew that his own death was near. Look at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. Pretty strange when you think about it. The great apostle Paul, with all the things he did for God's people, not one person stood by his side. And he was called before the emperor there. They all cut and run. But I pray that it may not be laid to their charge. He knew that they were just weak. They really weren't wicked people, just you know, couldn't bring themselves to go standing with Paul. They were all afraid. Look at verse 17. Even though nobody else stood with me, verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You can always count on God. That's what he's saying here. That's the, the reason, that's the thing about comfort. That by me, the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, probably Nero, Verse 18, and the Lord shall deliver me, and the Lord shall deliver me. He did it in the past, and I know he'll do it in the future, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I have a bond. I have a pledge. I have a promise. He's a parent who has promised to care for me. Peter said life is like a race in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He said, life's not easy. And on this race, we're running along these roads. 
Unfortunately, there's chuck holes and all kinds of things that get in the way. But whatever comes, look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver out the godly out of temptations. We have a personal guide. Pauline and I have done some traveling. Every once in a while, we'll be able to go out and do some little time on our own. It's always fun to kind of do some exploring. But we have discovered that if you're in a foreign place especially, and you're on a little tour bus, boy, it sure is nice to have a tour guide. And that's what Paul is saying here. He said, we have a personal guide through the foreign land that we live in, this earthly land that we live in. You may remember Paul was before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and verse 22, arrested on a bunch of trumped up charges. This small time king was going to arrest him for insurrection and rioting. But look what it says in verse 22. Having obtained the help of God, I love it. Having obtained the help of God, they continued to that day. Now, folks, that's what we can say this morning. Having, con having attained the help of God. That's what mighty David said in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 37. He said, and David was a young man, but he had enough experience with God to know that somehow, some way it would work out. Look at verse 37. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. Yes, God took me, tear me when I was in the paw of a bear and a lion. I know he'll take care of the future. James Moore, the lyricist said, he was there all the time. He was there all the time, waiting patiently in the light. He was there all the time. When I felt like giving up, he was there all the time. Hallelujah. Jesus was there all the time. The beginning of comfort, the basis of comfort, the boundaries, the benefit, the brawn, and thank God for the bond. God gives us a promise. And now finally this morning, the benevolence. The wonderful benevolence, the glorious thought of God's comfort. Look at our last verse, verse 11. Here is the, here is the great thing about this whole thing. Verse 11, ye also helping together by prayer. There's this great, wonderful thing that you are giving to me, a great benevolent spirit. You are praying for me. There have been so many, many faithful church members. Yes, some crazy people, but thank God, so many had been praying for Paul. And he said, because of your prayers, are you listening? Because of your prayers, the Lord delivered me. And because of your prayers, I know God will deliver me in the future. Do not for one minute think that you're not important. He'd say, well, I can't get out there and work on the property I'm don't have the skills or maybe the strength or the time or whatever. I don't have the ability to do certain things, folks. All of us can pray. And that prayer is so important. The strong but slow to get on board pastor of the church in Jerusalem, who was called a pillar of the church, James. James, the half-brother of our Lord, in James chapter 5, said, always remember that each of you are like Elijah. Elijah, a man of like passions, he puts on his pants the same way. 
He puts on his toga the same way as you put on your toga. He said, remember, in verse 16, the effectual, fervent prayer of one righteous man availeth much. One person praying has so much power. God shut the heavens in Elijah's time. He caused it to rain when it was needing to rain. Folks, one person did that. He was just one person, and that's what God is reminding us. Paul was saying, look, pray for me. One person's prayer can just bring the rain. Folks, God wants us to bring the rain of the blessings of God on this ministry, on this state, on this country. One person, one godly couple like Aquila and Priscilla, one ladies group, one men's group, one family. God says just one righteous person praying has so much power. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, really this matter of intercessory prayer is our first ministry. Look what it says, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, say that with me, please. First of all, first of all, the first ministry that every Christian has is what? Supplications, prayer, and intercession. All of us are called to the ministry of interceding for others. You'd say, well, I don't know what to do. Pray. I don't have much money. Pray. I don't have much time. Pray. That's something we can all do. You can pray at uh, one in the morning or two in the morning. May not be able to call somebody or write somebody, but all of us can do something. Intercede at the time for these people. God says intercede. It is our greatest ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 1 says, it is a great benefit. Look at verse 11. You help together. You help the ministry by prayer for us. Now, look what the last part of that verse. Glory to God. God gets glory and praise. And all of us begin to give glorious thanksgiving. That for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks will be given by many. Meaning, when you have lots of prayers and God gives lots of answers, then you get lots to thank the Lord for. Would you like to have a wonderful Thanksgiving this year? I just read, uh, again, the wonderful story of the Mayflower ship coming over and the wonderful great uh, Puritans, godly people and came for the propagation of the Christian faith and meeting with those wonderful Indians there, the indigenous people, and uh, the prayer that they offered. Folks, it was a great moment. They were giving thanks to God. You can be sure those people had some, a whole lot of praying going on before that moment. Nearly half of those early pilgrims died during that, that first winter there. Folks, we pray, we pray, and God said when we pray, we help the ministry. And then God is going to fill you with thanksgiving because of all the answers to prayer. Your first ministry, first of all, everybody pray. Folks, imagine what would happen if all of us this week would get the idea, my ministry this week is to pray all week long. Pray every day. Pray several times a day. Pray for the ministry. 
Pray for the pastor. Pray for those that are serving the Lord. Pray for those that are out there ministering. Pray for the school and pray for those that are working and serving and pray for our missionaries and pray for the things of God. My first thing is to intercede. Then God said, not only do we help the ministry, but then in fact, we get so much thanksgiving and that's encouragement because when God fills your heart with this great sense of gratefulness, thank you, Lord. God said, that's what encouragement comes from, by interceding for other people. Friend, be encouraged today. When the devil brings up your past, you just remind him of his future. And you just get out there and get to praying. And when that adversity comes, know that God is ready to strengthen you. The God of all comfort. I heard a story this week. And I close with this. That I think relates to the power of encouragement. The story touched my heart. It's a story from the mission field, actually. A mission field of Africa. A precious poor little girl who, in addition to living in those kind of circumstances, on top of all that, had a cleft palate. As a result, she was the constant butt of all the jokes and kind of was an outsider and unhappy. They called her names, ugly names, and that just drove her deeper into despair. Most people really didn't pay much attention to her except for one school teacher who showed a great interest in her. Always was talking to her, always trying to reach out to her, always trying to connect with her, trying to make a difference. One day, the pupils being tested with how good they could hear. Not having the normal kind of means, the teacher would whisper something into the ear and then see if the pupil could say it back to her. That girl now tells the rest of the story. She, now a wonderful Christian wife and mother, said that that day when that teacher whispered into my ear was the turning point of my life. Here's this little girl, cast off by others, really for the most part living in despair. What was it that the teacher whispered in the ear of that little girl that transformed her heart. Here is what she said. The teacher drew close to her ear and said, I wish that you were my daughter. I wish that you were my daughter. And that phrase so encouraged her, she went on to live a successful life. Today, friend, the God of comfort whispers in every ear. No, he shouts it. I wish you were my daughter. I wish you were my son. Will you reach out and take his hand? His hand is offered to each. Receive it today. Receive Jesus. Take him as your Lord and Savior. The God of comfort is saying, I will be there for you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm so grateful today that the God that we serve is a God who cares about each and every one. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church 
and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.